You're listening to Grow Yourself Up, a weekly mental health podcast hosted by Kath Cunahan. I'm a psychotherapist, writer, and speaker working in private practice in London. I specialize in the impact of our own childhood on our parenting and how we can heal and integrate our childhood trauma, wounding, and stress so that we can inhabit our full adult selves. Join us each week as we talk about all things growing ourselves up, how we can tend to ourselves in our parenting, generational healing, and overcoming the impacts of childhood trauma. Together, we will become more self-compassionate, connected, authentic, resilient, and heart-centered, so we can live our own full and beautiful lives. As a listener of this podcast, you're welcome to come over and join the Facebook group. So search on Facebook for Grow Yourself Up. It's a private Facebook group of all the listeners. And did you know there are journal prompts that go along with every episode? So sign up for the journal prompts on kathcunahan.com or go to my Instagram, kathcunahan, and sign up at the link in the bio there. And you will get my newsletter, Nurture, Heal, Grow, which contains all the journal prompts. Looking forward to seeing you in the Facebook group. The podcast is produced each week by the wonderful Audio Cafe. Thanks for being here. It's episode 72 of Grow Yourself Up. And today I'm joined by Dr. Jody Paluski. So in this episode, we are going to talk about uh, Jody's journey to motherhood and her experience of postpartum and how she resourced herself and um, some of the stories from her family and how she continues to grow herself up in motherhood. And one of the things I want you to do as you listen to this is to track your own body sensations and to notice what stories you make up about yourself uh, based on hearing this. So um, you'll hear me reflect as we go through this um, chat, this interview, what I noticed. Um, And one of the things I noticed was there was no shame. Jodie didn't speak about shame. She didn't speak about um, having shame about her choices or her experiences. There's, um, I didn't hear anything from her about beating herself up. And I really want to link that to her attachment in her own family with her parents. And um, I'm going to tell you more about my own reactions in next week's episode about what I made up about myself listening to her story. And um, there's a fabulous story. You'll literally hear some cycle breaking within a family in a, in a story she tells, which is a fabulous story. It made me burst out laughing and also want to cry. It felt so beautiful to me. So make sure you tune in next week for kind of more analysis around this and um, the linking of um, the kind of the impact on on um, children and families and how, because I'm going to trace some of um, her family history. She's given me permission to talk a bit about her own parents. So that's really exciting and really generous. So let me give you a bit more detail about Jody. So Dr. Jody Paluski is a behavioral neuroscientist, psychotherapist, and author. Her research is affiliated with an institute, a research institute at the INSERM Institute um, in, at the University of Rennes in France, where she lives. For over 15 years, Jody has studied the neuroscience of motherhood and the effects of perinatal mental illness and antidepressant medications on the mother and developing offspring. Her work has been published in high-ranking peer-reviewed journals, including top neuroscience journals such as JAMA Neurology 
and trends in neurosciences. She regularly speaks nationally and internationally about her research findings, as well as the fascinating effects of parenting on the brain. And um, in 2020, she she started a podcast to share all around this. So her podcast is called Mummy Brain Revisited, and it focuses on bringing current research on the parental brain to the general public. So she interviews other neuroscientists, other experts in her field, and brings us up to date with the current research. So go and have a listen to that. And she also recently published a book called Mummy Brain, Discover the Amazing Power of the Maternal Brain. And it's published in both English and in French, and you can buy it now. Dr. Pelusi's work has appeared in the New York Times, Scientific American, CNN, the Boston Globe, and multiple other global publications. I'm really delighted to have her here today. And all her social media contact details are in the show notes. Okay, um, let's dive in. Hi, Jody. Thank you so much for joining me here today. I'm delighted that you've taken the time to be with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Pleasure. Tell us a bit about your path to motherhood. Tell us about your children. Um, yeah, just talk us through that journey. Yeah, as I reflect on this, this is an interesting one, actually, for me. I, I would have to say that I uh, motherhood was something I was interested in doing, but it wasn't something I was raised to be. And I think that that's an important point. So it wasn't like I needed to have kids. I could. It was focused on career. You don't need to be with anyone. You don't need to have children. And I was like, okay. So I went into it, I think, with a bit of a different um, perspective. I also have many of my family members, in fact, don't have kids, my female cousins, a lot of my closest friends don't. So there wasn't, at least there wasn't a pressure to be a certain way, which I think was quite valuable. Um, I did have one aunt who, from the time I was probably eight, every time I saw her was like, do you have a boyfriend? Do you have a boyfriend? But oh, wow. yeah, she would she <laughs> ask this to everyone. She was hilarious. Um, but overall, I think it wasn't like this, like, when are you getting married? Do you have a boyfriend? Like, there wasn't this thing. Um from either my parents and my paternal grandparents who I spent a lot of time with or any family members really, which was, uh, I think it made a big difference, especially now when I look back. Anyway, I had also like, I was one of those more nerdier kids and wasn't into boys and this whole thing, but I did love like little kids and the parent-child interaction. So something that was always interesting to me. And I ended up going into research in this area because I was really interested in the intersection between hormones, brain, and behavior. And it's, I mean, the perfect place to study this is pregnancy in the postpartum. And also it's so cool, right? Pregnancy biologically is just fascinating. And now I'm learning more about the sociology of it. And it's like, it's really fascinating motherhood itself. It is fascinating. I, I love that you've really touched on that because we are so magical in the way, like we, the pregnancy happens and just everything, the way fertilization happens and the way the egg plays such an active role. It's just, yes, magical. So you were doing all of this before you even thought about wanting to yes, have children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before I met my husband and everything, this was before. And I also want to point out that some of my research friends that study the maternal brain are men. And don't have children. So because they think it's so cool, right? I think sometimes we think, oh, it must be all the moms and or the females that study females. And actually, it's not true. There's a lot of researchers out there because they're fascinated in this topic of women's health and motherhood because it actually is just 
cool, right? You're right. Yeah. Not because they're in it. And I wish we more of us saw it that way, right? And and we're curious about it and saw it for what it is as this amazing and very interesting transition in life. But yeah, so I was studying all yeah. Yeah. And I think, can I reiterate that with you? Because I think you're so right. Because I, as I was sitting here listening to you, I noticed myself, I was like, oh, wow. Oh, good. Men are studying us. But we haven't been studied enough at all because there's hardly any stuff on women. And so I think that there's some sort of internalized patriarchy that I have that, oh, yes, I, I guess it's people who've been through it who know how challenging or hard it must be. So then they go into it. But really, it is. It's like, it's the most extraordinary phenomenon. And before people like you, or bef- like we just have not, it's it's interesting that we've taken so long to get to this place of being interested. Yeah. In and I'd have to say in the past, especially with perinatal mental health and even the early work on maternal behavior, it's been a few good men who were like, this is interesting. This is like, let's look into this. Let's study this. Right. I mean, we also have a history of not having women you know, being allowed to write and all those sorts of things, if you think a few hundred years ago. But there have been people that have been curious about it for what it is in this like really interesting time in a woman's life. And not because they were women and not because they had problems with their mother or whatever. It's just, I think, because they were curious about biology, let's say. And and I think that's also important to remember. Yes. Because I think it's fascinating but in terms of my journey, I ended up, uh, yeah, I met my partner or my husband now, but really my partner in parenting. I will throw that out there because that's what he is. And we had, uh, I think it was in my mid-30s when I had my first. So we had had discussions about having kids and we both wanted them. We got married a bit later in life, I guess, compared to everyone else. I think we were in our 30s. I don't remember. Actually, yeah, we were because I had my first the year after. And in fact, we also realized like from our backgrounds, he's a physiologist and he studies sexual differentiation of the brain. And he's done some work on how the brain um, plays a role in sexual behavior. So we had this joke that he would study, he studies how to become pregnant, but I study pregnancy. It's like, we're so nerdy and weird. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's not nerdy and weird. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of fun. And, and, but it was like, so we also knew that this was a time when it could be complicated, right? That it doesn't just happen. There can be, you know, challenges with fertility, challenges with pregnancy. And I think we went into that with, with knowledge and caution. Um, but we got pregnant really quickly, in fact. And so, uh, and, and I loved being pregnant. I have to say, I felt great about it. I also, we both, I think our philosophy was very much, uh, we'll just figure it out as we go. And it should be like, we kind of trusted biology, like we should be okay. But on this other note, I also had been studying perinatal mental illness. And I knew darn well that I could have a lot of struggles and him too, but more so me because I have have a history of anxiety, obsessive thoughts actually that I had to deal with in grad school that were quite significant. And so I was well aware of my needs. Who could I contact if this started to happen and what would that look like? So I really approached this transition in my life by knowing, I think, 
I had a good knowledge base for one, I think about what could happen, but I also had to get my people in place. So I needed, I had a midwife that I felt comfortable with. I was in Belgium at the time and my midwife was Dutch right across the border. I had a gynecologist because she insisted you have to have a gynecologist uh, because you have to be within 10 minutes by ambulance to a hospital and you have to have a, a medical team. So that's great. I found one I liked. I did, in fact, fire one, let's say. I never went back to one and found one I liked. And then I also knew a psychologist I could contact who I'd seen in the past, even though she was in Canada, but I felt confident if I needed something, she would help me. Um, So I had that. I also wanted my mom there at the time of birth, not in the room, but in my house. So we arranged for that. And uh, I, yeah, I think those were the big ones. And another big one for me was I also wanted my husband to be really involved. Yes. So I went into that because I didn't want this to be a full-time job for me because I also wanted to continue my research. So I kind of went into this with that around me and, you know, which I think was really protective and, and helpful. Yes. Like how well prepared, because I think we always focus too much on the birth and that's like focusing on the wedding as opposed to the marriage. And I can really hear how your postpartum you set yourself up to be so supported. Yeah. I had to know that I had my people in place. I, this is it. I also knew it, it was interesting. We did also haptonomy. We had access to haptonomy. A friend of mine had told me about it, which was really helpful. I think just to have a, this kind of time together and to learn a, some techniques to use during the birth. So haptonomy is quite popular in France and the Netherlands and Belgium as well. Tell us about that. I don't really know how to define it, but basically it's individuals who help you and your partner connect to your baby during pregnancy. And in certain ways, like we went in and she would always have it would smell really nice. She was very calming. She would have us like put our hands and like have the baby move to the hands. Like there was like a connection. And then she would talk a little bit about birth. Like she, her suggestions were like, my husband should always stand below my waist because the whole point was to focus on going down there was some visualization of of visualizing like the baby going down the canal there was breathing she talked about she gave us a little few different techniques i would say i probably didn't use any of them except for he probably stood lower or at least tried to while i was like squeezing his hand off but the point is i also did this because i wanted skills Part of this is toolbox, right? Yes, absolutely. I went into it being like, I I don't know if I'm going to use these, but at least I feel like I know some things. Yes. And also what I find so interesting listening to you is that you you really normalized asking for help and that it's okay. And I don't hear any shame about that, which I think no. is, what's, is what so many of us are covered in that like, especially it's interesting what you said about intrusive thoughts that the intrusive thoughts, people think, oh, I better keep those quiet because that makes me sound like I'm a terrible mother. Oh, so then I can't get help. And then the shame just keeps us trapped in silence. So I love how you're modeling. Like, basically, we need a mantra for pregnant women to find your people. Yes, find your people. And for me, this wasn't about, like, at all that I could do this by myself. No, like, no, 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 no. I want to be healthy. So this is what I'm going to need. And I definitely... Like when I struggled with intrusive thoughts in my PhD, that was terrifying and really hard for me. And so I knew I also still continually to check on myself because I know 
what can be triggering or I can feel them start to wrap up. It's usually when I'm too stressed and then I'm like, oh, thanks for letting me know. I'm going to have to modify some things. But I also knew that pregnancy and postpartum, you know, it sets you up. It's not really great for our mental health in many ways unless we protect our health, right? Yes. Like we have to be proactive. And I mean, that's it. That's how it is. So I definitely, I mean, I was also fortunate. I guess I'm a bit, I don't know. I was fortunate to have very supportive parents, supportive husband, also very much into what do I need and how can I get that, right? There's, and I don't think I can do anything by myself and I prefer not to, right? <laughs> in, in, in some things, right? I mean, uh, of course I do things better than my husband. Sometimes we all know this, right? Where it's like, oh my gosh, my way yeah, is better. Yeah, we have different skill sets. Yeah. We have different skill sets. Um, and we joke about this. But yeah, so that was kind of, it, it is find your people. I really, really believe in find your people. And so I also had one other thing that I think was really helpful with the birth preparation was a friend of mine had uh, planned to have a home birth with her first, ended up in the hospital. The midwife was there, but didn't practice, but was there during the time. And then the gynecologist came in. This is the typical procedure in the Netherlands. She was Dutch or she is Dutch. The midwife had a camera and took pictures. I think it was the midwife or her mother of the birth. And she was just like, I don't want these pictures. But then when we talked about birth, she's like, I have pictures. Let me show you. And I was like, uh, okay. It was <laughs> so actually helpful to realize how much the head squishes. Yeah. Right. And how that whole procedure works. And I actually wish my husband had seen some because he told me after giving birth that he was like freaked out, but he wouldn't let up, like he didn't show it, but he's like, the head was so like the whole thing looked really not great down there. And I think he forgot how, and he's like, no one else was freaking out. Like the gynecologist didn't say anything. So I was just like, gonna, I just let it go. But he was like, it was so not like what he thought. Yeah, like TV. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that this was also a really great reminder that how much uh, our body adapts to this process. And so, yeah, yeah. So that was really helpful. That's such a good point, I think. And I love what you actually said about, because it's interesting in this country, so I'm in the UK, they say that your partner should stand above your shoulder. Oh, really? Yeah. And I think that that might be to protect some sort of, um, like, I don't know, future sex or, or seeing like if you, if you poo in labor that they don't want your partner to see that or something. I think there's something around protecting some sort of, I'm not sure what it is. Well, I think that, well, that was what they said that it's better for them to stand up there. But actually what you said about drawing the baby down and having the partner down there to witness that is really helpful. And the photos, I totally agree because it's, it's an evidence of the, of, just how tremendous the whole process is. Yeah, how fascinating it is, right? I actually like wanted to be a midwife for a phase of my life, but uh, went into graduate school instead, which is good. I think I deal better with the top than the bottom part of people, but um, <laughs> but it is pretty fascinating. And so, yeah, so that was like, that's, I mean, of course, we could probably talk about my birth story for two hours because, you know, I love birth <laughs> stories, but I will cut to the chase and tell you a couple of key points was my daughter ended up in, in, in intensive care because of an, a growing infection, which was quite stressful for us. Oh, wow. 
wow, that must have been really stressful. It was really stressful. Yeah. And because she came out and I was just like, this is so lovely to hold her. And then they're like, we're going to have to take her away soon. And I just started to cry. Um, this was the second day. And but she was really healthy and big, but they just didn't know what was going on uh, exactly and how to give her IV antibiotics. But in the meantime, we had had some time with her. And I remember being really conscious that my husband needed to bond with her. Um, and as much as I just wanted to hold her the whole time, I did consciously make the decision to like pry her off me and give her to him for skin to skin. And he was fully delighted. Yeah, He was waiting for it, right? But this, I think, set up the the tone in a way for us and for me to be able to share parenting. Yes. I also did. And anyway, my daughter was fine in the end and everything worked out. Breastfeeding was a horror story. In the beginning, lots of guilt that nobody put pressure on. My mom was like, you don't need to breastfeed, give the baby a bottle. My husband's like, got the formula, here's the bottle. I'm like, no, it should work. Oh, no. It's terrible going it through this. It is terrible, this. yeah. I had some similar horror stories, yeah. Yeah, and anyway, with persistence and support, it, that d- did work. And then it was quite different for my second, who I could only breastfeed on one side because I had too much milk on the other side, and he would drown, basically. So, so interesting. is wild, yeah. It is um, wild. It's wild and painful and filled with grief. And what you said at the beginning, a horror story sometimes. It is sort yes. of like if, you're, if you've got mastitis or you're bleeding from your nipples, they look like a vampire. I mean, it's literally like the baby. I mean, looks like a vampire if they're drinking the milk. It's kind of... It's, I mean, it's, it's such a struggle. I think breastfeeding in itself is something we don't prepare women for enough and don't give them the access to do it but we push it a lot depending on where you are we're like ah but breastfeeding's best or you know but it's like yeah it's only best if you have help doing it right yeah it doesn't actually i mean whatever and if it doesn't work it doesn't work but i was surprised at the guilt i felt around that because i'm usually quite okay with things but i felt quite guilty and really I think it was this perception that it was natural and my body was supposed to do it. And now mm-hmm. that I know more, I realize we haven't always done this. We used to give our babies to wet nurses and, you know, we would be in more communal like living and there would be someone else who would probably lactate if you couldn't and and feed your baby. But it, like we don't haven't always just done this and babies haven't always just come out and everything works magically. Um, but we kind of get fed a story. Well, there's that fantasy about that. And then there's the fantasy of somehow what you just said about we're defective. And then we're left with the kind of this feeling of something wrong with me. And that find your people, like in breastfeeding, we need find your people more than anything because it's a real training process, you know, to, to learn how to latch, to figure out if there's um, tongue tie, um, t- to persist, you know, because what I hear from a lot of people is you have to persist, persist, persist. And then suddenly you hit a place where it suddenly flows. Yeah, and actually, and I had lactation consultant in the hospital, and I was using the nipple shield, and that wasn't working. Oh, I will also, I mean, I will tell you, I had a nurse cry because the baby didn't latch within the first few hours. Cry in my hospital room. And I was like, okay, it's a good thing. I know you've got your issues, and I'm okay with that. But if you did that to another mom, she would be full on, like, probably have to you know, depression and what have you. Like, don't do this. 
Yeah, there was a lot. I mean, that's a whole story about the whole journey of it. But I even saw lactation consultants and it wasn't until my midwife came to visit and she's like, every boob's made for every baby. And she literally grabbed my breast, grabbed the baby and stuck us together. And then she showed also my husband things like how the baby should be lying and whatever so he could spot check. And she had told me I was keeping the baby too warm. It needs to be awake motivated to suck and get rid of a bunch of blankets. And I was like, uh, okay. So from then on, actually, we kind of sorted it out. We also supplemented until like, you know, we felt that it was all working out. But you need also a gifted person. Yes. You know, not every, you have to find your people that click with you and that work for you and that you believe in. Yes. And this is super important. And then you need it, you need at least one other adult to help you. Yes. Because I couldn't have figured out the breastfeeding, for example, unless I had spot checks and my husband literally there, like, eh, I think the head doesn't look good from this angle. And I was like, okay, like it took a long time. And normalizing that process. Um, I mean, I don't think we were going to talk about breastfeeding, but this is such a lovely discussion, I think, because what you said about finding your people who click with you, because you want those people to support you, not you to have to defend yourself against those people in any way. Yes. And for them to really have your back. And I think often with healthcare providers, we feel somehow like with your person crying in the hotel, uh, the, not the hotel room, the hospital room. Like we have to create this image of ourselves so that they reflect back to us that we're okay. But really what we need them to do is just to say, I'm going to help you whatever happens. Like you're a brilliant mother, however you feed, whatever your boobs are doing. Yeah. Yeah. And here are some like, like, is this something you want to do? Here are some techniques you can use, right? Yeah. And I also feel sometimes there's people, I don't know if you've come across this, but there's people that are really healers, people that really like have a touch or have a way about them. So my midwife at the time was one where she's like, eh, you've got this boob baby. Whereas the lactation consultant was all like, I don't know, like we could try this and we could try that. And like, so it wasn't like the same maybe expertise or confidence or there was something there. And I think I found this periodically in different healthcare professionals that I've seen where there's like ones that are more intuitive, more experienced, or just there's something about them that I describe it as healers, quote unquote, but there's something magical, perhaps, that can be really helpful. But 100% find your people. Like, that's it. People, people, people. Uh, and, And another thing I did do the first week when we were home is I went for a walk by myself for an hour and left my husband with my child. My child, as you'll notice, I'm saying my child. My child. And uh, I don't even think I was gone for even an hour because, you know, you can't walk so far. I went anyway, whatever. When you, when your, your perineum is, is challenged. But I came back and he's like, he's a physiologist. Ooh, I already said that. So he's really evolutionary biologist. He's like, okay. I thought we were supposed to be attracted to a baby's cry. And he's like, definitely not attracted to the cry. Like, not attractive. And I was like, oh, this is so funny. you <laughs> <laughs> like, he was really like, no. This kid, like, mm-mm. yeah, something's gone wrong here. And it, it was in, it not gone wrong, but it's just like biology. Evolution is like something's missing in this argument. But I think you're attracted to calm the, tri- the cry down. You're not at finding yes. it attractive, right? But he was really like not attractive, not wanting this. But it was good for him. And I mean, of course, I did. It's not like I loved it when she cried either. But it was good for, I think, us to figure our stuff out right and how how to do this and together and to joke about it and to be honest like 
don't want to be around this kid right now. Can't take it. And I'm like, yeah, okay, no problem. And I want you to say that you said something at the beginning of the podcast where I'm going to get you said, but I find it interesting that you said about the crying because I think that that theory of us wanting to soothe the baby and the crying and obviously from an evolutionary perspective, they need us to soothe them and to feed them. But it doesn't take account of our own implicit memories from childhood and how our crying was dealt with. So what comes up somatically in our own body as like a, some sort of um, emotional flashback. That's interesting. Yeah. And I think that depending on how our crying was dealt with, it can be so such a danger signal to our bodies that it feels like we just have to shut it down. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think growing up for me, I had really, I would say lovely parents and, and I was mostly with my mom, but quite responsive. But I could see my husband's mother, she's one of those who just let them like cry and wasn't a, so- a soother, which I think was the fashion at the time. So yeah, what you're saying could play a role there. I will say he's very motivated to calm them, but I think the grading of it was a bit more intense than for me, for example, although we're both quite reactive and don't want, you know, the child to cry for so long. But I think that the like grading of it was a bit more intense for him than for me. I think that's such a nice point because we could phrase that as saying you might've had a wider window of tolerance for that. And so it was less jarring to you. Yeah, exactly. So whereas he has a wider window of tolerance for other things than I did, which was also, this is why I always think we need like more adults supporting. It doesn't have to be a partner, but you need other adults because they can help, right? They can help you learn to broaden your tolerance window, but they can also, you can pull on each other's strengths and that's really helpful. Exactly. And I think that you've talked about how you immediately got your partner involved. Yes. Um, and I think that we've both done some mother, the motherhood studies um, course, and we took in there we talked a lot about the um, maternal gatekeeping. And in my language, I think maternal gatekeeping is often about our own perfectionism and control. That it means that we don't let go and let people help us. And I think what you're talking about here about that we have to let that go and invite in the help. Do you want to say a bit about because I had that experience too because of twins, but I, I really love to hear this from you. Yeah, I th- I think part of perhaps part of this actually goes back to the fact that I wasn't like raised to be a, a mother and that that wasn't going to be my role. And so I didn't pull on this as a thing I had to do. And so I really wanted to, you know, continue my career and do things like that and I knew that I needed to have other things in my life and couldn't just be 24/7 with my child. And so I also you know, we went into this in lots of ways, trusting that we would just sort it out as we go. So I wasn't following a book on how to do anything, really. I didn't have an app about how big the baby was. And maybe I could have been more educated around breastfeeding for sure, um, which might have been helpful or what have you. But in terms of like, it didn't follow schedules. I didn't, I mean, we tried to have a routine and a schedule based on my trusted people who I liked, my my team, but I didn't follow anything or feel I had to be a specific way to be good at what I was doing. And I think part of this is because I wasn't, it wasn't something ingrained in me at all. Yeah. It also, I think, is had to do with the fact perhaps I also had, I mean, I had, a, I think, lovely parents overall. 
And I think that that was really helpful. I also worked in a daycare when I was in um, with little kids 11 to 36 months when I was in, I was an undergraduate. And I had a niece. So my sister um, was a teen mom, older sister, and my niece was 10 years younger and spent lots of time with us. She's like my little sister. So I also had this bit of experience there. I think that played a role. Not that I was a baby person. I never like babysat really or anything, but there was something, there's something about being around positive caregiving environments that that can be helpful. Yeah, but I, I, so I didn't go into this, like, I know best, I know what I'm doing, I can do this. I kind of went into it like, okay, we got this, I hope. And if we don't, someone will help us. Yeah, but you're not, um, I love the, the, the way you're describing how you did not subscribe to some sort of fantasy of you needing to be some sort of perfect mom. And what you said about the response of caregiving that you received is such an antidote to shame. So I don't hear, I, I just, this is such an uplifting story because I don't hear any shame about it. It's just like, this is how it was. Yeah. And, and also I would have to say like my parents in particular were very, and even now my parents divorced when I was a teenager, but both of them separately have been continually supportive of us as parents, me and my husband and also my, my siblings, but like I hear firsthand from them how proud they are of us, how we're doing so well. You know, we did things we didn't think we were going to do. Like we decided to co-sleep. My parents didn't care. My mom, as I said, couldn't care less if I was bottle feeding or breastfeeding. My dad, neither. They didn't care if we had one or two or zero. And they're very supportive of how we are as parents, which adds to this dynamic of I have parents that are this way and helps me to be a certain way as well. Yes. It helps you to be how you are and how you want to be. Yeah. I also grew up, even though my parents separated, my dad also did things in the house and so, or my parents divorced, I should say. But when he was home, there wasn't, there were for sure, um, what do we say, gender-specific roles that they played into. But I saw a crossover as well. So my dad would vacuum or cook or do the dishes or whatever. Uh, and same with his parents. My grandma and my grandpa were very much partners. Uh, and from the very, from early on, actually, um, there's a story that my grandma had two kids. My cousin told this at my grandpa's funeral. But my Grandma had two kids under two early on, and they were farmers in northern Canada. And and my grandpa was clearing the fields with horse, with a horse, and it's hard work. And he came home one day, and the lunch wasn't ready. And so he's pretty mad. Like, all you do all day is you just take care of the animals and the kids and make me lunch, and this isn't happening. So he went back out that day. Um, my grandma was, I'm guessing, rightfully pissed off. <laughs> so the next morning... Uh, she got up and he was like, what are you doing getting up? And she's like, I'm going to go plow the fields. My grandma wasn't very tall, but she was a farmer's daughter. She didn't know what she was doing. You stay home with the kids. She came back at lunchtime. He was on his hands and knees, dry heaving. Couldn't potty train the two-year-old. No food on the table. Thank God you've come back. I'm going to go out and finish plowing the fields. And my grandma said, no, no, no. You're staying here for the rest of the day. So when my grandpa told my cousin this story, he apparently was laughing his head off over this, like this was years later. But from that day forward, 
he, there was a new level of respect. And I always saw them, my grandma would be doing some craft or something. He would always come over and be like, oh, that looks really nice. Even when he was almost blind and she and I would do some quilt together when I was in my early 20s he would always be like, those colors look really good. And he would always have some input. Like there was a partnership there. Um, but yeah, she showed him. And let me tell you. Yeah, look at this, the value of this unpaid work I'm doing. Like that's such a powerful story. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. It's so good. I, I like, yeah. Anyway, I think I heard that story before I had kids as well, but this is a story. I was just like, oh my gosh. And my grandpa was like over six foot. He's a farmer, you know, he's a big guy. And for him to be dry, heaving hands and knees, not being able to potty train a kid <laughs> and deal with the two, it was probably a, this whole disaster. And my grandma to be so ballsy that she was like, no, you stay for the rest of the day with them. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. I love that. There's such power on that. Oh, I really love that story. I think this is like it's such a nice image to have in your head about you know if for anyone listening to this, if you have trouble, take inspiration from that story. Yeah, I, love I that. think of, it's just I'm like, and I I was like, I have her genes, so I'm pretty proud of that. Uh, and also my my mom, because um, that was my dad's parents, but my my mom herself has been you know also quite the the person to live outside the constraints of what it is to be a mother or a female in many ways. So I think that's also valuable. But I think this is also valuable for those moms out there to hear that you might be pushing against some boundaries, right? Or or expectations. But this can be a benefit for your child and for your grandchildren. Yes. Right? To hear these stories, to know that you're like, no, I'm going to do this differently. And this is, it can have a real impact. It has a huge impact. I hear how much your cultural context has supported you in your family. And also, I love what you said about how your parents don't care um, whether you co-sleep or how you feed or anything like that, because so much of what I hear clinically is all the comments from the parents and feeling like you have to be a certain way because of what your parents tell you or what was being modeled. And for many of the people that I work with, control is a massive issue. So they're trying to exert control on their children. But listening to you, you can hear how positive it is when you are just supported in your choices without your parents telling you you need to be a certain way for them to be happy. I mean, that is narcissism ultimately, but yeah. yeah. So I, I think that's really valuable. Thank you. Yeah. And I always, this is the thing is I, I, of course, we all have opinions about how things should go. And I'm not going to say my parents haven't said like, well, they shouldn't behave that way. You know, those things come up a little bit here and there just because of different generational expectations, very slight and nothing I would, I feel is quite impactful. Um, but there's something about putting our opinions aside and respecting that the person feels they need to do things a certain way. And I'm, especially when I work with clients, I'm like, what do you think would be helpful? And then how do we get to that then? Because for some, it could be sleep training. For others, absolutely never sleep training. I don't care, in fact, because I want everyone to be safe and healthy. So, but what's going to work for you? And I think this is where I've haven't had to live up to an expectation because I haven't put so many on myself and haven't had that from my parents, at least with regards to, to motherhood. And I'm sharing the load. Like I have a partner. I said once at a conference, I said, look, my partner can do everything except for breastfeed and he can give a bottle. Like there's nothing 
he can't do. And so, and this is how I feel about most parents. Usually we might have, we have definitely have strengths, right? And weaknesses, but there's really about parenting. They can do it. It's not just a mom's role or birthing parent's role to be a certain way or have to take care of kids in a certain way. So, yeah. Yeah. Tell us about the expectations. You said you don't have too many expectations of yourself. Tell us how did you get to that place? Because I think a lot of what trips mums up is high expectations of self and constantly shifting um, ideas of trying to get things perfect. And and um, how have you um, like not imposed expectations and how do you get comfortable with just how your children are? Uh, yeah. Yes, I think... Perhaps as you're asking this question, I'm thinking maybe my focus is more on health than achievement, perhaps in some ways. So checking in with how am I feeling? Is this stressing me out or not? Uh, more so than I have to do it this way. I don't know if that makes sense. But also, you know, of course, there's, you know, I want my children to to be healthy and be happy to do well at school, let's say. Um, so it's also part of finding a balance of when to push and when not to a little bit and checking in with what's what's important at this moment. But I think that's also easier when I'm feeling less stressed, let's say, or I can can focus on that. So I would say focus is more on health and achievement. But I also will have to say that, you know, my kids are not, I would say they're relatively average, right? I'm not struggling with extra um, concerns like neurodiversity or things like this that can be really impactful and, and change how you, you know, how your day is set up, right? So you yeah, have to learn yeah. to manage it in a different way. So I don't have super big challenges this way. I also will say I definitely freak out about stuff for sure. Like, you know, you totally have those normal, like, oh my gosh, this just happened to my child or my child just did this. They're going to be like horrible or they're going to die soon or whatever. Like, and we, but I do do this stuff because I can be quite dramatic, but it's good Me because too. <laughs> my, yeah, because I was like, we're going to have to admit him psychiatric Institute. I can see this right now. I guess a good thing we know a psychiatrist and my husband's like, whoa, <laughs> This was like, he just was feeling sad. Like, let's just calm down, right? Um, so, but at least I can like let that stuff out in a way, like in a safe space and laugh about it. And and I think we use laughter quite a bit. Yeah. But in expectations, I don't know. I also have faith that my kids are going to grow up okay and that it's not just going to be my input that's going to make them a certain way. Does that make sense? So it takes some of the burden off. Not that I'm just sitting on the couch watching TV and <laughs> making them do stuff either. It's like, I know, right? Because I probably sound like a total offhand parent, like my husband. <laughs> no, you're not everything. at all. No, but what I hear is, is a lack of anxiety, which is such lovely because I, I also sometimes spin out. I totally spun out last week about something. And my husband actually said, you're really spinning out. So that kind of, he acted like the external frontal cortex for my amygdala and he sort of clamped down the anxiety. But I think that many of us have such high levels of anxiety that we do just exactly what you said, which is, it's all a disaster. Um, they're going to be, they're ruined and take so much responsibility for um, the way they are instead of viewing them as a separate person who's come through us but is not ours um, and 
just dialing down the anxiety and thinking there's all these other positive influences. It's going to be okay. Yeah. It's so helpful. Yeah. And we use, like, in my household, we use a lot of humor, I think, a lot. And I will tell you, there's definitely worth times, like, I picked up my daughter from school and she's like, so-and-so has her ears pierced. I'm like, oh my gosh, have I missed the ears piercing time? Should we go get ears pierced? Like, am I keeping up with the Joneses? And so we went and got ears pierced. And I was like, oh my gosh. So I do some weird things. I think sometimes I'm also living in my my bubble uh, of like work and other things. And I'm not like keeping up with what's going on. And so then all of a sudden I'll be like, oh my gosh. So what? Everybody has what? Like, what are we supposed to do now? Um, uh, and I am like, I can be super anxious person as well. But I think it's also finding your balance and and being able to tap into that and having a sounding board my husband or my mom, or I could talk to my dad even about stuff. And they're like, well, they can tone me, you know, like you said, yeah. they can be the prefrontal cortex. and like, let's just shut that down a bit. Let's just see how it goes. Um, of all the things um, that I think are helpful in parenting, what I've realized is don't react and just half your reaction. If you feel like you have to do something right now, like halve the intensity of what you're going to do and maybe just wait two days and see how you feel about things. And things always improve. Yeah, that's true. And tra- like it's because it gives us time to respond and process, right? I'm noticing our time and I want to quickly ask you about um, something about your work because you do so much fabulous research and you've got a fabulous book, which hasn't yet published in the UK. It's publishing next year because I tried to get it on Amazon and I can't get it. I can't get it until next year. I do have a copy. I have a couple extra ones. Anyway, if you want one soon. But I want to tell the the listeners about um, Jody's book. And I want you to tell us a bit about how has your research helped you in conceptualizing what you're going through and like supported you in ways to be like moderate in your responses or to understand, oh yeah, this is something, might be something about my shifting brain or how have you used it almost to reparent yourself, I guess? Yeah, uh, this is a good question. I think, I I mean, part of it is I had this knowledge base coming in that the brain changes with parenthood and it's normal and with motherhood. And I think I've, as I, I've um, been more involved with the social media or with the public in terms of uh, how the brain changes with motherhood and parenthood in general, I realized that people just didn't know that. And so that was actually a that's a bit, it's a big deal because I went into it with this knowledge that, yeah, it's changing. Yeah, it's kind of normal. Yeah. You're supposed to learn how to parent. Your brain will kind of figure it out. Like I kind of went into it like that instead of like maternal instinct will kick in and there'll be a switch that turns on and you will know how to do it. You won't know how to do it. Yeah. You're going to learn how to do it. You're going to make a lot of mistakes and it's going to be like crazy bananas, but you, you should and your brain should sort that out. Right. Yeah. So I think that's part of my research has been really um, knowing that beforehand has been really helpful. Yeah. And I think, you know, as I think about it more and more these days and as I am a parent and I also am curious about how I mean, how does my brain continually change as a function of this relationship? And this isn't something we've been studying as much, but I am guessing that because as your child is growing up, I now have an 11, almost 12-year-old, that we are adapting to what's going on in their lives and how they're developing. And we have to follow that, right? And so I think about this often as 
in that we are constantly changing. Our brain is constantly adapting and being modified as parents. Um, as we follow our kids' development, we are developing too. I think this is pretty cool, right? And interesting and exciting. But it also perhaps gives some hope because you know that your brain, I mean, your brain isn't hardwired. I think we forget that. And so we have some probably pretty big highways in there, right? But there's ways to change the route a bit or add another one on. I think there's there's hope in knowing that you're not, you don't always have to be a certain way if you feel like you need to modify your parenting style, for example, or you're not comfortable with how things are working out. There's ways of changing that and your brain will change as well. And some of that will come with having additional support um, to help you to do that, right? Because I think parenting, we need to learn from others. It's not something we can do or should do in isolation at all. And so, yeah, I think there's something beautiful and fascinating about how our brains change in the context of our children and even our relationship. Um, but that also can give us hope to know that it's like, okay, maybe I will get this right for like a day until it changes again. So I think the way you're speaking about it is so calm and so holding that, you know, if, if there's things that are not going the way I want to go in parenting or if there's ways that I need to change or things that we just, we can source help and that it's okay to source help and that um, we should never expect to do it alone. I think that's such an important thing. If there's lots of people who listen, who have had quite a lot of trauma, childhood trauma, developmental trauma, attachment trauma, what could we say about because I think that especially when we've had like perfectionism is one of the most common coping strategies when we, we've um, had trauma and with perfectionism, there's very little appreciation of process. So what you said that you and your husband were just going to trust that you would learn how to do this. Often with perfectionists, there's the, that process is almost intolerable because we need to know, we need certainty about how it's going to go. And I think that what you said about our brain, that we can kind of hold this position of it's always changing. Is there anything specific that might support trauma survivors that you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know anything specific, but when I'm thinking about trauma survivors, I'm also thinking, I'm guessing you're going to need extra support in your, your your support people. Also, probably in the postpartum, at least early on, isn't a time to delve in too, too much that's heavy. Yes. So, but it is a time when you can definitely learn from parenting coaches, therapists, what have you to develop some skills to help make it feel better. And I would also say, you know, part of probably the reason you are the way you are. And if, you know, perhaps you, it, things don't feel the same way is, is it's adaptive right? It's not bad, but you are adapting to your experience and your environment. And so I think we often think of things as good or bad, but often I think we need to think of it as being adaptive. So you're behaving a certain way because it makes sense to you. Your, your brain is like, this is what we need to do now, but it might actually be inappropriate or not correct, given that your environment isn't as traumatic as before for example. And so I think that there's that piece of acknowledging and accepting that you're doing the best you can because of your experience, right? Yeah. But also yeah. you can change that with support and it can be modified a bit to fit better with your current situation. 
but it's hard, right? This is hard. And it's not your fault. It's also not your fault. You are a product of your experiences. So that's the way it goes. I really want everyone to hear that. And unfortunately, as part of a product of our experiences, the core of shame is just so common. And that blocks the help seeking often. That blocks the idea of welcoming process. And it gives us that idea we shouldn't feel like this or we should be a different way. And lots of my work is just about the shame is talking shit, basically. Yeah. And also get rid of like, get off social media, get rid of the parenting books, like whatever is making you feel more shameful and have find your people that get you or that you get and respect and interact with them. Right. Or that one book that resonates with you or that one podcast or that one person or whatever, but just narrow it down to the things that are helping you. Yeah. And the shame is total, like, that's total garbage. Forget about it. You can start yourself out. There's people there to be with you during this journey. And I think that that you've got this. And your brain will get this. That's it. Exactly. Just quickly tell us about your book. Oh, yes. And your podcast. Yeah. So my book is called Mommy Brain. Uh, It's out in, in French as well as in English. And it's basically talking about what we know about how the brain changes with motherhood, fatherhood, perinatal mental health. And I have a section talking about mommy brain specifically, or mom brain or memory and motherhood. So it's research-based, but I do talk, uh, it's a narrative where I'm telling you my thoughts about things um, and what I think we need to know and how we need to demand to understand more because in fact we don't know very much right when we think about the brain and parenthood yeah so that's part of 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 the piece of the book is to get us curious about what's going on but also to start to be like hold on a second how can we don't have how why don't we have answers to these other questions that seem quite obvious yeah so it's about it's for healthcare professionals it's for parents for anyone who wants to know about how the brain changes with parenthood and perinatal mental illness and actually what the science says about mommy brain yes and this is something that's where i started my research was looking at memory and motherhood so it's a bit a story of my life as well uh, and my experiences and thoughts so that's my book uh i it, i also have a podcast mommy brain revisited where i speak with other neuroscientists about their research on the brain and parenthood and so i really wanted it to be something where people could access really the scientists work and hear the scientists talk about it themselves yeah it's so, wonderful yeah. yeah so that's that's mommy brain revisited and um yeah it's I, tell I us your social media. Your I social am, you can find me on Instagram at Dr. Jody Paluski. I have a website, jodypaluski.com, and I'm on Twitter at Jody Paluski. And all of these will be in the show notes, all of these details. And your book is published in North America and Canada, and it's being published in the UK um, next year. And I think if you want to get it now in the UK, we can reach out to Demeter. I believe. Yeah, I think you can reach out to Demeter Press, to, which is to the Canadian publisher. press. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you can reach out to them directly. I I wish it was more accessible more quickly, but this just sometimes happens with books um, and diff- being in different countries. But yeah, it is definitely out there. It's also an ebook format in some places as well. I guess if yeah, if you have a VPN, you can maybe download that from the Canadian Amazon site. I don't know. Good idea. Yeah, something or the American one. 
So just so you know, throwing that out there. I want to say thank you so much. Yes, thank you, Kath. This was so nice. Thank you for your time. It was just so joyful and delightful. Thank you. It was also really nice to relive this part of my uh, my life and my perspective on my journey. Because often I'm talking more about parenthood in the brain, but not actually about how this applies to me or what I've done. So thank you for that. Thank you for sharing your story with us. You've been listening to Grow Yourself Up, hosted by Kath Cunahan. We'll be back next week with a new episode supporting you to better understand and tend to yourself for more heart-centered, connected, authentic, and resilient living.